white male, five foot six to five foot nine, slender to medium build, reddish or sandy blonde hair, thin lips, lazy or droopy eyelids, maybe a collector of antique or unique firearms, cowardly, possible micropenis. If alive today, would likely be in his 50s or 60s. Join us tonight. Perhaps you can help bring this chicken shit motherfucker to justice. Welcome back to episode number 17 of Super Mystery Bros, the podcast that's in a hurry because we've got a lot of important stuff to cover before we make our deadly descent into the unknown. My name is Nate. With me again tonight is legendary PhD haver, Ivan. I don't have it yet, man. Well, you're almost there. Real quick, if you're a new listener who came aboard after hearing me on the From the Shadows podcast, welcome. And if you're a bit confused as to what this podcast is, you're not alone. We are too, but thanks for coming around and taking the time to check us out. We really appreciate it and hope that you stick around. Secondly, and sad news for the podcasting world, the Stitcher app is about to shut down at the end of this month. So what I'd like to do is take a moment to talk directly to those of you who have been listening to us on the Stitcher app since about the first 10 episodes of the podcast or so. And so what I want right now is for everyone else to please turn your volume all the way down real quick so that I can just talk to only the folks who have been listening to us on Stitcher since the early days of the show. This is only going to take a moment. All right, your volume is down, right? Okay, so now that everyone else's volume is turned down, I just want to express my, my deepest gratitude toward you guys because, believe it or not, in the early days of this, of this podcast, you guys were overwhelmingly the highest percentage of our listenership. You know, like we really couldn't have gotten this far without you guys. And I'm not going to lie. There were times when I felt like giving up and that this was just all hopeless, you know, because I'd be out walking down the street and strangers would just heckle me, you know, and they would say mean and hurtful things to me. Like, you can't do it. Just give up. What makes you think anyone wants to listen to you? You don't have what it takes. You're a loser. Just quit, you fucking loser. You know, and that's what they would say to me. And there were times where I'd feel that maybe they were right. But then I would, I would open up my little podcast app thing and see that we got another download from someone on the Stitcher app. And it would bring me that little bit of hope that I needed in order to keep pushing on. And so I want to thank each and every one of you who have been listening to us on the Stitcher app since the early days of the podcast. We hope that you stick around and resubscribe to us on whatever new app that you use after the Stitcher, the Stitcher app kicks the bucket in about a week. All right, everyone, you can turn your volume back up. Thank you for your cooperation on that. So with all that out of the way, you guys know the drill. Leave us a rating and review. Reach out to us at supermysterybrospodcast at gmail.com if you'd like to contact Ivan or I or Kyle for any reason. Or if you've got a podcast you'd like to collaborate with us on, just you know, hit us up. Or if you'd like to just tell us how we're doing, hit us up. We also, 
I also want to put out a reminder that we put out an offer a while back when we did our 10 episode retrospective for the next three people who left us a five star rating and review on Apple Podcasts could reach out to us and choose a topic or a mystery for us to cover. And we got two of those spots still left at the time that we're recording this. So if there's something you'd like to hear us cover, go leave us a five star rating and review and then shoot us an email. Or if you're paranoid about us getting your email address, you can just go to our website, supermysterybros.com, and you can leave us an anonymous voice message through there. You don't even have to give us your email address. Uh, George M1737, if that is your real name, the offer still stands for you as well. You never reached out to us after you left us your review, but we're still keeping your seat at the table nice and warm for you in case you ever want to cash in on your prize. All right, Ivan, do you have anything that you'd like to say before we get into it? Nope. Nothing. Okay. Right. <laughs> well, that's fine. All right, so are you ready to search for the sixth son of a bitch, man? Yep. Back in the year 1956, President Dwight D. Eisenhower signed into law the Federal Aid Highway Act of 1956. Having been inspired during his time in Germany in World War II, and seeing the efficiency of the Autobahn system, he sought to bring this type of highway system to the good old U.S. of A. Not only did, the, did a national highway system make sense from an economic standpoint, but also, in the event of an invasion by a foreign power, <clears throat> not naming names here or anything, a highway system would be needed in order to transport troops, equipment, and supplies across the country in an efficient and timely manner. The result was the creation of the nation's interstate highway system, a system of vital arteries running across long stretches of the nation. Nowadays, millions of people drive on the interstate highways without so much as a second thought. It's something that we take for granted in our modern, fast-paced world. Some of you who may be listening to this podcast right now may be driving on it. You might be a 9-to-5 wage slave on your, on your way to the office. Or maybe you're a long-haul truck driver who pops no-dos, listens to an endless stream of podcasts for some semblance of human companionship, and heaves your piss jugs out onto the side of the highway at 70 miles an hour, only to make some poor bastard wearing an orange reflective vest and was just convicted of a DUI come by and pick it up off the side of the road. We're not here to judge. But if you happen to be driving around on the U.S. highway system, or any other nation's highway system for that matter, Take a look at the cars and trucks around you. Have you ever wondered who these people really are? Or, could one of these assholes congesting up your highway even be a bloodthirsty serial killer? The answer to that question, in case you're wondering, is a resounding yes. Interstate 70, or I-70 for short, from Baltimore, Maryland, all the way to Salt Lake City, Utah. It stretches east-west across the United States' heartland. Construction of it began in 1956 and wasn't fully completed until 1992, the same year our story takes place. But in the spring of that year, a sadistic madman would set out on a brutal cross-country killing spree along this dusty stretch of highway, leaving at least six people dead in his wake and possibly several others in the following years. To this day, the I-70 killer has never been identified, nor has he ever been brought to justice. Tonight, dear listener, please 
pay close attention to the details in this case. Someone out there knows this person. And perhaps that someone is you. On the cool and breezy afternoon of April 8th, 1992, at a Payless shoe source located at 7325 Pendleton Pike in Indianapolis, Indiana, Robin Fuldauer, a 26-year-old employee of the store, had come into work to fill in for another employee who had called out sick. Just four years prior, in 1988, the year of our Lord, she had graduated from Indiana University and now wanted nothing more than to just settle down with a good man and start a family. However, instead of the heroic man of her dreams coming in to sweep her off her feet, a strange unknown man caught the eye of an employee in a nearby store, sitting on a curb in his parking lot, staring out across the street at the Payless shoe source as he was rifling around through his bag for about half an hour. He was purported to have been seen talking to himself and occasionally laughing. At around 2 p.m., the manager of the Payless began trying to call Robin to check up on her, but nobody was answering the phone. After failing to get in contact with Robin, the owner of the Payless called the gas station next door, and an employee of the gas station went over to check on Robin. What she found inside the store was unsettling, at best. The cash register was wide open, the money taken, and the store appeared to be empty. She immediately called the police, who quickly came and discovered Robin's body, laying face down in the bank office. She had been shot twice in the back of the head with a 22 caliber firearm, execution style, and with no signs of a struggle. Although $90 had been stolen from the register, robbery did not appear to be the main motive. The killer had apparently fled the scene through the back door of the store, which was wide open. All right, so let's just break this down. So Robin Fuldauer, she wasn't even supposed to be working at the Payless on this day. And then at some point in the afternoon, the manager of the store tries to call her, but she's not answering the phone. So the manager calls the Speedway gas station, which is located right next door, to have somebody go check on Robin. And this person was Lucretia Hardin, who was actually friends with Robin. And she worked at the gas station. And, and so she, she walks over to Payless to check on her. But nobody in there, there's nobody in there. And the cash register is just wide open. She has this creepy feeling and she knew that something was wrong. So what she did was she called the police. And then according to Lucretia, the police arrived quickly. And then they went into the back storage room and found Robin lying face down on the floor with a gunshot wound to her head. Police were able to find the uh, 22 caliber shell casing. There's no sign of a sexual assault or any sort of sexual motiv motivation. And according to Lucretia, Robin was a, quote, sweet, quiet, and humble girl, end quote. Just three days later, and nearly 700 miles to the west in Wichita, Kansas, the killer would strike again. 23-year-old Patricia Smith and 32-year-old Patricia Majors were working at a bridal shop called La Bride de Elegance. The two Patricias were happily married but to separate men, not each other. The store was located at 4613 East Kellogg Avenue inside of a small strip mall just off of U.S. Route 400. The store was supposed to have closed at 6 p.m. on that evening, but the duo agreed to wait just a little bit longer for a customer who wanted to swing by and pick up a cummerbund for his tuxedo. 
However, just a few minutes after 6 p.m., a man knocked on the door of the business and Patricia Smith went over to open the door, believing it to be the customer that they were both waiting on. But the man soon pulled out a gun and ushered the two women into the back room and made them lie face down on the floor, where he subsequently shot both of them in the back of the head, Smith once and Majors twice. As the killer was preparing to exit, the customer who was there to pick up his cummerbund arrived. The killer was holding a gun, which was wrapped in a wedding whale, and attempted to coerce the man to come, up, come into the store and enter the back room. However, the customer refused, and realizing that he was losing control of the situation, the killer told him to get and not say a word to anyone. The customer slowly backed out of the store, never turning his back to the killer. Terrified, the witness waited an hour before calling the police, who arrived at 7.30 p.m. to a horrific scene. The bodies of Patricia Smith and Patricia Majors laying in the pool of blood in the back room of the store. Just like the previous crime, the store had been robbed, but only a small amount of money was taken. The witness described the man as a slightly built red-haired man wearing brown jacket and wielding a strange-looking gun. No escape vehicle was spotted. Wichita detective Tim Ralph said, quote, If that witness would have cooperated, he would have killed him, end quote. And, quote, I don't think he anticipated for there to be a second person there, end quote. We'll get into into more details later on in the episode, but the witness was able to give a description of the suspect, stating that he was about five foot six or five foot seven, and from his cooperation, a composite sketch of the suspect was created, which is the photo for this episode if your app supports episode photos. You can also just Google I-70 killer and the composite sketch is going to be plastered all over the search results if you'd like to see it. A description of the weapon that the killer used was also provided, which, when combined with some other forensic details, would later help police determine the exact make and model of the weapon, which we'll go into in greater detail a bit further down in the episode. The witness described it as looking something between a rifle with a short barrel or a pistol with a long barrel, and it had a foregrip on it, which, to those of you who are not familiar with components on firearms, is a hand grip that goes underneath the barrel for your offhand to hold onto as you're shooting it. So basically, it looked like a like a pistol with a really long barrel on it, so like so long in fact that it had a foregrip on it, basically. Just over two weeks later, on April 27th, 1992, Michael Mick McCown, a 40-year-old owner of the ceramic shop called Sylvia's Ceramic Supply, located on 2615 South 3rd Street in Terre Haute, Indiana, had a chiropractor's appointment in the morning and was, and was deciding whether or not to take the day off or to go in and open up the shop. He decided to go in, which tragically cost him his life. Just after 4 p.m. on that day, a killer walked into the store and shot Mick point-blank in the back of his head and stole $50 from the store before fleeing the scene. This time, the killer had become more brazen by choosing a time and a location where more people were out and about what also stands out is the fact that Michael was not lured into a back room. He was shot right there on the sales floor, with his hands just inches from, a, from an item, which was a plaster house. 
He was presumably bending down to pick up. Michael, or Mick, as he was known, was also the only male victim in the entire spree, leading to speculation that the killer may have mistaken, mistaken him for a woman as he had long hair which he wore down in a long ponytail and an earring in one ear. It was also speculated that the name Sylvia Ceramics, which Michael had named after his mother, may have led the killer to believe that a woman named Sylvia would be working inside. Michael likely never even saw it coming, as police theorized that the killer may have asked to see an item and was then shot in the back of his head while as he bent down to retrieve it for the would-be customer. Or conversely, Michael was already bending down to retrieve the item as the killer quietly walked in, not even knowing that the killer was there at all. Michael was a local musician, a singer, and a multi-instrumentalist. Means that he was able to play in multiple. Yeah, he, Michael was like a was kind of a gig musician, and uh, he, he did a little bit of a little bit of touring with with like some of the bands that he was in. Yeah, just a local musician guy, really huge into music. He kind of reminds me a lot of my dad. He was kind of on the same level as as Michael. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. In an article from KMOE.com by. Bob Cyphers, dated January 20th, 2022. Detective Brad Ramsey of the Terre Haute Police Department stated, quote, It does strike me as odd. These were times when people were out and about. He got off on the fact that people were right there and he was doing something that heinous and getting away with it. It probably really got the juices flowing for him, knowing that the people were right next door or on the street, right in front of the place, end quote. Ramsey later went, went on to state that he believes the killer was stunned when he found out that his target wasn't a woman, quote. Then he realized it was a male. I think he was probably concerned about the struggle ensuing if he didn't shoot him right there, end quote. So up until this point, basically all of the victims have been shot inside of like a store that's in a strip mall, like a little small strip mall, um, except for Robin Fuldauer. She was shot in a pay less that had its own parking lot. But um, Patricia Majors and Patricia Smith, they worked in a strip mall and so did Michael McCown. So there's like a there's kind of a pattern starting to emerge where the killer is just targeting people that are working behind the counter at strip mall stores. Unfortunately, this would not be the I-70 killer's last crime. Far from it, in fact. 24-year-old Nancy Kitzmiller of St. Charles, Missouri, would become the I-70 killer's fifth known victim. Nancy had graduated from Oklahoma State University with a degree in geography and loved soccer and could be described as a proper country girl who loved line dancing, western wear, and country music. At the time, she was working as a manager at a footwear store called Boot Village, which specialized in western footwear located in the Bogey Hill Shopping Plaza on 2079 Zumbel Road. To further describe Nancy, we'd like to just read an excer excerpt from, from article written by Bob Cyphers, again, for KMOE.com. Quote, Nancy Christine Kitzmiller was just 24. She grew up in Mustang, Oklahoma, 
but her family moved to St. Louis when she was 10. She went to high school at Fort Zumwalt and was recently graduated from Oklahoma State University with a degree in geography. As with all young people, life was moving fast. She moved from her parents' home in St. Peter's to Grieve Quar, where, I guess, uh, had interviewed for a cartography job with the Defense Mapping Agency at, in St. Louis, and most importantly to her, had just bought a Chevy pickup truck days earlier. She had two passions in her life, soccer and anything and everything country and western. Nancy didn't even begin playing soccer until her senior year at Fort Zumwalt. Incredibly, she would end up being a captain of Oklahoma State University's soccer team the next year. After she graduated, she organized her own high school friends to play in woman, women's soccer league in Bridgetown. Bridgetown. When it came to country fair, be it clothes, music, rodeos, or her speciality, western dancing, Nancy had few peers. The Texas two-step, she owned it. With sparkling blue eyes and long curly brown hair, she was a friend to everyone and was still beaming about her family vacation to Paris just weeks earlier, end quote. Yeah, she sounded like a keeper to me, man. On May 3rd, 1992, a beautiful spring day, tragedy would strike. Nancy was not scheduled to be working on that day. But as fate would have it, another employee switched shifts with her, similar to what happened with the first victim, Robin Fuldauer. She was working alone on that day, and at 2.30 p.m., a customer walked into Boot Village and became concerned when they noticed that nobody else was in the store. And as they walked into the back room to look for an employee, they were shocked and horrified by what they saw. Nancy was laying lifeless on the floor having been shot in the back of the head with a 22 caliber firearm. The police initially believed it to have been a robbery gone bad, but soon realized that the robbery was likely not the main motive, as Nancy's purse remained untouched, and the killer had only stolen a small amount of money from the cash register. St. Charles Police Detective Pat McCarrick, regarding the strange circumstances of the crime, said, quote, You go into a Western store at 2 p.m. on a Sunday, what are you expecting you're going to get? You're not going to get much money. Your average stick-up man, this is not what he's going to do. This guy's motivation was the act of the killing, not the robbery. End quote. Nobody had heard the gunshot or witnessed the perpetrator entering or exiting the scene. However, a witness did report a suspicious man nearby with dull red hair and a medium height who was sitting outside of the store at around 1230 consistent with other eyewitness descriptions of the suspect. All right, so how would you describe this area, man? Like, what are your first impressions of this area? This looks like a suburb area of some sort, man. With the... Yeah, it's kind of like it's, it's in a shopping plaza. I don't... I think it's a little bit too big to call a strip mall, but um, it's kind of... Oh man, what what kind of shape would this be? It's kind of like a like a C shape almost, and Boot Village is almost wedged into the upper left, like the northwest corner of the mm-hmm. of the shopping plaza. So it's kind of in the corner. It's right next to an animal hospital, so it's not quite in the corner, but it's kind of nearby the corner. And uh, Highway 70 is just right there. I mean, if this guy drove there, 
he could just park his car somewhere in the parking lot, do his deed, get back into his car, drive off, and just head right back out onto Highway 70, and he's gone. The last confirmed victim of the I-70 killer, but possibly not actually his last, was the owner of the small health store called the Store of Many Colors. The 37-year-old Sarah Blessing had pulled into the Woodstone Village Shopping Center, which was located at the corner of 63rd Street and Woodson Road in Raytown, Missouri. To open up her store at about noon, her day proceeded as normal, talking to her husband over the phone about matters like her two boys and their dog and cat. However, the owner of a television repair and video store directly next to the store of many colors, Tim Hickman, spotted a man walking towards Sarah's store from across the parking lot. Quote, I happened to glance up and I see a gentleman coming across the parking lot. He had on a sport coat and I thought, wow, that's weird. He was walking this way. I look up again and he stepped right in front of my door. I looked at him and he looked at me. I think he was a little bit shocked because if he scoped the store a little earlier, my mom and my sister were here. He looked kind of shocked. He looked at me like, huh, that's not what I kind of thought it was. I looked at his face. He turned left and took off, end quote. The murderer then entered Sarah's store. Tim Hickman went on to state, quote, about two or three minutes after I see him leave, I hear a pop. It sounds like a gunshot. Then I said, that can't be it. I haven't told anybody this before, but I grabbed my gun and hit it and had it behind my back. I jumped through the door. Sarah's door was just closing and the guy I saw earlier was going around the corner. I didn't see his face, but I could tell by his clothes. He was whipping around the corner of the building. It was the same guy, same clothes. I stood there for maybe 20 to 30 seconds. I said, something is wrong. I looked both ways, and he was gone, over the hill. That's a steep hill. It couldn't have been more than 30 to 45 seconds now. I said, where did this guy go? I ran back to the store and called for Sarah. Mr. Hickman went over to Sarah's store to check up on her. As he looked through the window, he didn't see anything out of place. However, as he took a few steps into her store, he was shocked and horrified by what he saw next. Quote, I kind of looked in through the door and I didn't see anything and I was calling, ma'am, ma'am, and I stepped forward a couple more steps and then I saw her legs sticking out of the other room, end quote. Mr. Hickman stepped in, clo stepped in for a closer look only to discover Sarah lying motionless in a pool of blood. Mr. Hickman immediately phoned the police. A grocery store worker who was out in the parking lot collecting shopping carts witnessed the man leaving Sarah's shop and then woke up a steep embankment toward Woodson Road. Yeah, so it's important to note that a lot of online sources here state that he walked up an embankment toward I-70, but this location is... it's three miles away from I-70 as the crow flies, so it's a bit further away from the highway than a lot of the other locations. I've seen a lot of sources online describe this as a steep embankment, but I think it's a little bit misleading because I scoped this place out on, on Google Street View, and the embankment that they're describing doesn't look physically challenging to walk up at all. Um, it's only about, I'd say, 
20 degrees of a slope and it's about 50 feet long. So it's not like this guy had to be some sort of athlete to, to go up it by any means. If you'd like to see this location yourself, you can head to Google Maps and go on to the corner of 63rd Street and Woodson Road. And the store of many colors is now, it's apparently vacant, but it was most recently a fantastic Sam's hair salon. And it's the store that's like right on the north corner of the building. And so with that, that brings us to the end of the official story. But our work here is far from over, dear listener. Through forensic analysis and eyewitness testimony, it's, be, it's been determined that the killer almost certainly used a highly unusual firearm in all six of these killings. And it's one that the average person would probably not be able to find very easily. The Irma Verka ET-22. So we've got a picture of this gun up in front of us right now. What, what are your first initial impressions of this gun? It's definitely unusual, man. What makes it unusual at first glance to you? I mean, the shape of it and how, how long is the barrel? Barrel, yeah. Barrel is, yeah. Yeah. So just as a disclaimer here, there are a lot of online articles surrounding the I-70 killer that describe this weapon as kind of like a, like a piece of shit that was from pre-World War I Germany. But that's actually not the case. The ET-22 was actually just inspired by a pre-World War I German Navy Luger pistol, which the original version had a six-inch barrel, which I think is where the confusion probably comes from. But the ET-22 itself was manufactured far more recently, which I'll get into here. As the iconic Luger went out of production following the end of World War II, their popularity only soared as the supply of them started to dwindle, and they became hot collector's items. However, in the 1960s, the Irma Verka gun manufacturer of West Germany produced a Luger-style weapon that was based on the original Imperial German Navy model Luger which had featured the longer 6-inch barrel instead of the standard 3.8-inch barrel. But instead of making an exact knockoff of it, they opted to make the barrel even longer, coming in at a whopping 11.85 inches long, placing the gun at a total length of 16.5 inches, turning the weapon from a pistol to what can almost be described as a carbine. They dubbed the new weapon the ET-22, and only 6,906 of them were ever produced. Since we've never used one of these firearms before, we'd like to just play a short clip from Guns.com's very own Don Summers, who filmed a video review of the weapon and described it in his own words. Take it away, Don Summers. So going prone, I was actually further out, but I was able to steady the barrel a little bit better with uh, this rifle stock on it. Um, the blade sight has definitely had an impact on how my accuracy was. It's just really kind of hard to see. If I owned this gun, I'd probably take a little white marker or white, put a little white paint on that. Overall impressions of the gun, really like to shoot it. It's got a great snappy trigger. The action's really smooth. Uh, nice, like I said before, nice grip on it. This would be a great gun for a Luger enthusiast, or for that matter, um, it'd be a great heirloom piece. These were only produced from 1967 to 1969. And if you're interested in the Irma ET-22, go to guns.com. Y'all stay safe out there. Wow, thanks Don Summers. Our listeners will surely go to guns.com if they're interested in the ET-22. But if you're too lazy to look up this weapon, to describe it visually, it would look like a Luger with nearly a foot-long barrel on it. 
it's got a wooden hand grip and a wooden forestock. So it's extremely weird looking because it looks like a pistol toward the rear of it, but the barrel is just freakishly long and it looks almost like a carbine or a very short rifle. However, it's important to note that the police cannot rule out the possibility that the murder weapon was an Intratech Scorpion, which looks completely different, but the authorities seem almost certain of it being the Irma Verker ET-22 due to eyewitness testimony. But let's assume for a moment that the police are correct in their assumption that it was the Irma Verka ET-22. It was an extremely weird choice of weapon because it was highly prone to jamming, and despite it being a pistol, was extremely large due to its huge barrel, which, you know, would render it difficult to conceal. Through forensic analysis of the shell casings left behind by the killer, it was also determined that the killer painstakingly polished his bullets with jeweler's red rouge which would allow the bullet to slide more easily into the chamber and reduce the chances of a jamming, which would make sense if he was using like a piece of shit gun that was prone to jamming like the Irma Verka ET-22. So with all of this said, it, it kind of begs the question as to why he chose this weapon. It sort of doesn't make sense from a practical standpoint because you don't need something with a long barrel if you're shooting something at point blank range. And the long barrel on it makes it difficult to conceal. Like you, you have to wear like it's like the guy said he was wearing a sport coat to conceal this gun. When if he just had a little tiny gun, he wouldn't have needed us to wear a sport coat in the middle of springtime. And then another weird part about this gun that just makes it just a a stupid choice is how prone it was to jamming. So are are you familiar with how different firearms operate? Like I'm basically just f familiar with the hunting rifle, but I, so, I mean the one you got, you got to you got to load manually, you know. Yeah. So basically, this gun had a magazine which you you load the bullets into, and then yeah, the yeah. spring there's like a spring in in you the magazine. Pop the bullet into the right. Exactly. Barrel. So these these type of guns, if they're not if they're not made properly, as the bullet goes up into the chamber of the gun, it can it can jam when it tries to fire. And oh. so there would just be a click and there'd be a misfire and then they'd have to try to get the bullet in the chamber properly. It's just like again. the printer with the paper kind of thing. <laughs> I, I guess. Yeah. That's a good, that's a good, uh, that's a good comparison, but he could have chose, chose a revolver, which would practically never, never misfire like that because it's a yeah. completely different. Mechanism. Also using a revolver, would not leave a shell casing because this gun will eject a shell casing for the police to later pick up off the floor and they ha now have a piece of evidence. Yeah, from the side of the pistol, right? Just like, mm. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, it, I mean, I, I, it's beyond me why he chose this weapon. And I think that if he has an Irma Verka ET-22, he's probably, he's got to have other weapons. No, nobody's going to have only an ET-22. Like, it's not like he was probably limited to just using this piece of shit gun. Like, I think there was some specific reason that he chose this weapon. Yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll get into it later, but those were my, those are my initial thoughts. After the sixth killing, people living in the nearby vicinity of the I-70 highway were on edge. The fear and paranoia had spread all over the Midwest by this point, and yet... As the great people of the Midwest collect collectively held their breath and clenched their butt cheeks together. Man, come on. 
Nothing else happened. Days turned into weeks and months, and the killer seemingly vanished. However, some suspicious incidents occurred in Texas. September 25th, 1993. Almost a year and a half after the last known I-70 killer victim was murdered, 51-year-old Mary Ann Glasscock of Fort Worth, Texas, was just minding her own business, working at a small store located at 4708 Bryce Avenue called Emporium Antiques, which sat in a strip mall just about six blocks off of Interstate 35. When a friend decided to go into the store to visit her later in the day, she discovered Marianne dead from a gunshot wound, lying in the kitchen in another back room of the store. Much like the other killings, she too had been shot in the back of the head execution style with a 22 caliber bullet while working in a store located in a strip mall close to a highway off-ramp. A small amount of money was stolen from the scene, but the main motive was definitely not robbery. As October of that year turned into November 1st, the people of the great state of Texas, whom you should never mess with, collectively nursed their post-Halloween hangovers and flipped the page of their calendars. What should have been a quiet day of cleaning up smashed up pumpkins of the local neighborhood streets would turn into yet another day of senseless tragedy. 22-year-old Amy Vess, who worked at the dance apparel store in Arlington called Dancer's Closet, dialed 911. She was in a bad shape and the operators could not understand her. When first responders arrived at the scene, they discovered Emmy laying on the floor with the phone still in her hand, with multiple bullet wounds in her face. She was still alive, but barely. The authorities questioned her about what happened, which she was able to nod then ask if it was a robbery, and also nodded when asked if it was a man who did this. After being Life flighted to a nearby hospital. She sadly ended up passing away the following day. More than two months passed since the senseless murder of Amy Vess. By mid-January, the killer would strike again, this time in Houston on January 15th of 94. Vicki Webb, 35, was excited that day. She was about to go on vacation that very afternoon. Vicky owned and operated a small store called Alternatives Gift Shop, again, located just off of a highway, in this case I-69, in the Rice Village Shopping District near Rice University. After opening up her shop at 10 a.m. that day, one of her first customers was a man who was about 5'8", wearing a beige cardigan sweater, who walked bow-legged. He had long, shaggy blonde hair and spent a few minutes just looking around inside of the store. Quote, A short guy, maybe 5 feet 8. He was thin, very gaunt, very skinny. I will always say he looked like a jockey. He walked into the store and really just started talking. I would guess he was in his mid-30s. He was very tanned and had a leathery or weathered look. A worn down look. I still keep thinking he has to have worked somewhere outside. He asked me several questions about traffic in the area. Did I get a lot of walk-in traffic? I said, well, I am a small gift store, and it is in the middle of January. I was talking to him very much like a business person would, thinking, oh, this gentleman is just looking for real estate or something in the area, end quote. 
another customer soon entered the store, and the man told Wiki that he would be back in a few minutes. Quote, he was acting strange. Who thinks anything else besides this is a strange guy? End quote. The man soon returned, just after the other customer left the store. Quote, he said he was waiting to meet his niece. He kept telling me how much she would like this store. End quote. The man kept looking out of the front window repeatedly, which Wiki assumed that he was just waiting for his niece to arrive. Quote, he was acting like he was in the same kind of business as me. He was looking out both sets of windows toward the parking lot. He kept mentioning his niece. He was very pensive. He never got close to me, but he was acting very nervous. But I was closing at 4 p.m. and going on vacation. My mind was certainly not there. End quote. After about 15 minutes in the store, the man pointed at an item. Quote, he said something about a copper picture frame that he wanted. He pointed at the wall where the frame was. I walked over, grabbed it, handed it to him, and then turned around to go behind the counter. End quote. And then the unthinkable happened. Quote, I never heard him come up on me. I never heard a thing. I never saw a gun. I just heard a loud pop behind me. I realized I was falling down very slowly. I fell on my right-hand side. I had not quite registered what had happened at that point. I laid there thinking, oh my gosh, I am in trouble. End quote. The man then jumped over the counter and stole a small amount of money from the cash register. Quote, all I could see was his feet. He had on brown cowboy roper boots. He went to a small room in the back and opened the door. It was my storage closet. It was packed. There was no room in there. He closed it and came back over to me. End quote. Uh, Vicky, in that moment, believed that the only chance he had of surviving was to play dead and hoped that the shooter mistakenly believed that he had killed her. The shooter soon left the store, which was a relief, but to Wiki's horror, he soon returned. She kept her eyes closed and laid perfectly still. The man jumped over Wiki and pulled her legs down so that she was laying flat. He then pulled her pants down for an unknown reason, but she was not sexually assaulted. Then the unthinkable happened again. The man put his gun to her forehead and pulled the trigger. But to Vicky's relief, it just clicked. The man then laughed at his shit luck, but was soon spooked by a car door slamming outside and quickly left the scene, this time for good. Vicky laid in that spot for the next 10 to 15 minutes, completely paralyzed from the gunshot wound, until a would-be customer entered the store and came to her assistance. She went through an excruciatingly painful ordeal at the hospital as her entire head became hypersensitive, and in her words, childbirth has a pain level of about 3 but the pain that she felt that day was unbearable. However, through her own luck, she had a spinal abnormality, which helped deflect the bullet, causing it to ricochet off of her vertebrae and lodge into the back of her head. She had become paralyzed from the neck down, but eventually, through rehabilitation, regained her ability to walk. The bullet was never surgically removed and remains inside of her body to this day. She went on to state recently that, quote, the man took a lot of my life away. Once I had made the choice that he could not have any more, I have never looked back. I'm very lucky. If this was part of the I-70 killings, 
I am the ninth victim. The eight before me are no longer here. But whether I was part of the I-70 case or not part of the I-70 case, there still was somebody who shot me, and they are still out there, end quote. Regarding the composite sketch of the suspect, Vicky has said that there were similarities, but would not go as far as to say it was an exact likeness, but rather, the man's voice is what she would be able to immediately recognize. So with that, dear listener, although disabled from her injuries, Vicky Webb is still alive to this day, perhaps being the sole survivor of the I-70 killer. At this point in the story, you might be wondering why the authorities are not sure whether or not these three attacks in Texas were committed by the I-70 killer. It was a guy who committed the same exact types of crimes with the same exact type of victim in very similar storefronts for seemingly no reason with a 22 caliber firearm. Well, as it turns out, the killings in Texas were committed with a different firearm than those committed in the crimes of the I-70. And so an official link between the two strings of murders have never been made. However, many believe these were all caused by the same sick individual. Before we wrap up, there is one last crime that authorities have come out and stated recently as potentially having been committed by the I-70 killer. And this time, the entire thing was caught on tape. On November 30th, 2001, in Terre Haute, Indiana, just several blocks away from where Michael McCown was gunned down inside of Sylvia Ceramics nine years prior, a lone white male walked into the 7th and 70 Liquor NX, located just north of the I-70 Highway at 2710 Prairieton Road, where 31-year-old Billy Brossman was working. It was the day after Thanksgiving, also known as Black Friday. The events which unfolded were caught on the store's CCTV cameras. The man entered the store and picked up some beer from the fridge area before then approaching the counter where Billy was. Then suddenly, the man pulled out the gun and aimed it at Billy, who offered the contents of the cash register to the man, but was quickly ushered into the back corner of the store where the beer fridge was, and was immediately shot once in the head instantly. The killer then ran out of the store, leaving the beer behind, as well as the most of the money. Shortly after the murders, the case was featured on the television show America's Most Wanted, which resulted in multiple people calling in to the show to identify the man. And they all identified the same individual. His identity has never been made public, but he lived in St. Charles, Missouri at the time of the shooting, which is the same city that Nancy Kitz Miller was murdered in and has been to Terre Haute before and previously worked a construction job which took him all across the Midwest. He does have a criminal record for fraud and aggravated assault. However, despite all of this, the authorities never had enough evidence to charge him in the case or prove that it was him on the video. But they consider him to be a prime suspect in the murder of Billy Brosman and where possibly the I-70 killer. Despite having fairly clear CCTV footage of the suspect, the person in the footage has never been formally identified or been brought to justice for Billy's cold-blooded murder. All right, so I just want to point out some stuff that I noticed when I went to this location on Street View. 
So it's extremely close to I-70. It's kind of on the outskirts of the city itself. So in Terre Haute, there's at least two of these 70th and 70 liquor stores in, in, the, in the city. And this is not to be confused with the other one, which is closer to the city center, which I'd like to point out a mistake that Ivan and I, we watched the People Magazine Investigates documentary on the I-70 killer, and they pulled up a map showing the distance between Sylvia's Ceramics and the 7th and 70 liquor store, and they showed the wrong one on the map. So this particular 7th and 70 liquor store is actually north of Highway I-70. And to get to it from Sylvia Ceramics, all you would do is you would just pull out of the parking lot from Sylvia Ceramics and you would just go down a single residential street about 3,000 feet to the west and bam, you're right there. So it's super close and easy, quick and easy to get to. So what are your first overall impressions about this guy in the CCTV footage? Like what, what, what comes to your mind? Just first impressions. Just. The first impressions. Yeah. Um, looks a little bit weird, man, I'm telling you. Yeah, to me, like, my, my first overall impression of this guy is he reminds me of some dude you would see working in a computer repair shop in, like, 1997. It's not some guy you would imagine would just go in and randomly rob a liquor store and then murder the employee there. Like, how old do you think he is? Mm, 35. Yeah, to me, I would pin his age as like late 30s to early 40s, maybe. Me personally. It's, it's kind of hard to tell, though, because the footage is grainy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, he's wearing kind of like a lightweight black jacket with the collar popped up, and he's got dark pants. He appears to have hair that's beginning to thin all over on top. So I'm sure like 20-something years later, he's probably got a lot less of it now. It's kind of like medium brown in color. It's almost like your color, would you say? You mean hair? Yeah, hair color. Just the color of the hair. A little bit uh, lighter than mine, I think. Yeah, so it's kind of like, a, I would call it a medium brown. Not dark or light particularly, but somewhere in the middle. He's got a wedding ring on his left ring finger, or at least some kind of ring. And he's holding up a pistol, but from what I can tell, it, it looks more like a like a small dark revolver, and it's definitely not an ET-22. I mean, the footage, it, it's shitty and grainy. I mean, I don't think I could describe the guy as looking weather-beaten like the killer that Vicky Webb described. And I, I don't think I would say that this guy has sandy blonde or reddish hair. So if this guy is the I-70 killer, I think his appearance has probably changed in the nine years since the, the last time he, he murdered somebody. Um. I would also say that even though the images are grainy, this dude looks like a cold-blooded motherfucker because it looks like he's done this before. Like, he doesn't look nervous at all. He just has a blank expression on his face the whole time. And it's almost chilling to see his face as he's aiming the gun at the clerk because it might be the shadowing on his eyes or maybe he just has cold-ass fucking eyes, but it's, it's chilling to watch. He, he looks a little bit like... Robotics to me, actually. Like, yeah. a little bit tight, you know? Yeah. Um, kind of. I, yeah, I, I can see what you're saying. It's kind of, how tall do you think he is? Do you think he's on the shorter side? It's really hard to see from these pictures, you know? They're like freaking. It kind of is, but. 
My my gut instinct tells me that this guy isn't very tall though, and he's not really built as a large man. He kind of looks thin to me. He kind of reminds me of of like Tom Cruise if he didn't work out and was balding. So I'd say like somewhere around Tom Cruise's height, mm-hmm. plus or minus maybe an inch. And then um, maybe the last thing I'm noticing about this guy, maybe not the last thing, but. It's fucking petty, but it absolutely it 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 absolutely creeps me the fuck out. Is that it looks like he's shaved off his entire sideburns, and only complete psychopaths do that. So the side of his hairline basically starts almost near the top of his ear, and I don't know why, but every time I see somebody who does that, it immediately bothers the fuck out of me. Let me see your. <laughs> no, no, you still have a little. It goes down a little bit, but I'm just oh, saying it's like. Okay. Way too high for him, it seems. Mine going down a little. Yeah. Um. Oh, and another thing when 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 you actually look at the video, something I noticed he does he does walk bow legged, like uh, Vicky Webb described. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't know if you noticed that, but I I would describe this guy as walking bow legged too. In the 2021, the I-70 serial killer task force was reactivated. In addition to looking at the original I-70 murders, they also began re-examining key, key pieces of evidence, such as bullet casing found, casings found at the scenes and even the pockets of some of the victims in order to try and use new techniques to lift DNA from. But so far, no word on the success of that. As news of re-establishment of the task force came out, a tip from 1992 resurfaced from a man who had originally called into the Terre Haute Police Department on the day that Robin Polder, the first victim of the I-70 killer, was murdered. A man who was working as a construction foreman in Terre Haute, Indiana, had originally called the police on the day that Robin Folder, who worked at the Payless Shoe Source in Terre Haute, was murdered, but was originally overlooked, likely due to how busy the police were on that day. To call his story heroin would be an understatement. Back in 1992, the man was working as a construction foreman in Terre Haute when, according to his account, on the afternoon of Robin Foldauer's murder, between 2 and 3 o'clock in the afternoon, only about an hour after her murder, a man drove into his construction site in a cream-colored Cadillac Eldorado convertible with Florida plates. The man gets out of the car and is visibly excited or amped up and asked the foreman for a job. Needing help at the time, the foreman agreed, but told the man that he needed to fill out an application, which were down at the foreman's trailer, which was located off-site. And so he tells the man to follow him down there. And as the man follows the foreman down the road, he's tailgating him the entire way there, and at times so close that the foreman thinks that he's going to rear-end him. As they arrive, the foreman gets out of his vehicle and approaches the car that the man is in, only to notice that he is not alone. There is a female in the passenger seat, gripping the barrel of a gun as she hands off to the man. The foreman immediately panicked and ran back to his vehicle, speeding off into the nearby wooded area, with the man in the Eldorado immediately giving chase. In the end, the chase was broken off, and the foreman got away and immediately phoned the police, who by this time were busy dealing with the senseless murder scene of Robin Folder. 
He had waited for hours for the police to arrive, but gave up and went home, having assumed that his call had slipped through the cracks. It wasn't until he got home he saw on the news that Robin Folder had been killed did he realize the significance of what had happened to him. The description of the suspect is as follows. White male, 5'6 to 5'9, 150 or 160 pounds, short red hair, almost a dirty blonde, wearing khaki pants, black and white tennis shoes, and a light green army t-shirt, which matches what the witness in Wichita described. Investigators showed the witness various different firearms in hopes that the man could identify the weapon that he had been that he had seen the man with, and surprise, surprise, he pointed out the picture of the Irma Verka ET-22 as possibly being the gun he saw. Um, he was driving a cream-colored Cadillac Eldorado with Florida plates, which again, we're not trying to throw dirt on Florida. Lastly, police do have a strong person of interest in this case, who is the man that was identified through the coverage of the Billy Brosman murder on America's Most Wanted, but his identity remains hidden. So just to do a little bit of recap here, here are some of the most important bullet points about the suspect and his crimes. White male, most likely between 5'6 and 5'9, possible manlit rage. Slender to medium build, weighing between 140 to 180 pounds. Reddish or sandy blonde colored hair. And then these two are according to survivor Vicky Webb. Brown eyes, no glasses, with a low gravelly voice. Uh, beard stubble, thin lips, possible micro penis, lazy or droopy eyelids, standard American English accent, so no regional accent detected. According to witnesses, he was neatly dressed and clean cut. He appeared to be almost in some sort of trance prior to some of the murders. He may have lived in an area near to Interstate 70. He may be a collector of antique or unique firearms. Although money was stolen from each of the crime scenes, robbery was not his main motive. None of his victims were sexually assaulted. The FBI believes in the months prior to the murders, he fantasized about killing and described him as an organized, cold-blooded psychopath and have also speculated that he is a thrill killer. They also speculate that he savored the sense of being superior to his victims because he held the power to end their lives in his hands. They suggest he may have chosen his victim type which were young brunette women typically, based on someone who had wronged him in the past or perceived to have wronged him in order to enact revenge on similar types of people. So, in other words, kind of like a surrogate victim. All of the stores he targeted were located inside of strip malls or shopping centers near to interstates. All murders happened in the afternoon. You may have a link to the military as some of the murders happened near to military bases and could be a service member who was dealing with PTSD. If alive today in 2023, the killer would likely be in his 50s or his 60s. There's a $25,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the I-70 killer. So if you know who this guy is, come on down. If you have any information, you're asked to call the St. Charles, Missouri Police Department at 1-800-800-3510. Once again, 1-800-800. 3510. So if you have like a some creepy gun collecting uncle who has an Irma Verka ET22, that might be him. Who knows? All right, man. Um, that brings us to the end of the official story. Are you ready to try to get to the bottom of this one, man? 
Yep. Let's get after it, man. So I wanted to ask you, um, what do you think the killer's motivation was? And so I would want to know which category of serial killer we can fit this guy into. So if you, if you remember back to when we did the ax man, we went over the four different categories of serial killers. We had the, um, the mission oriented killer. We had the hedonistic killer. We had the visionary killer and the power and control killer. So let me just, I'm just going to run through a quick synopsis of each category. So people know what the hell we're talking about. So visionary is a killer that believes that they're being instructed by like a higher power to kill people. Like God is telling them to kill people or Satan or whatever. Like it's usually driven by a psychosis. And then mission oriented is where they kill in order to like get rid of some certain undesirable type of person in society. Then hedonistic killer is someone who commits the murder just for their own personal pleasure. So, you know, like torture, money, some sort of sick satisfaction from it would be hedonistic. And then there's a power and control killer, which they, they desire power and they seek to kind of dominate and control their victims. So I'd want to know what you think this guy was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I would say that First of all, we don't know much about the guy. We just know the, like the victims and like s- style model, right. model. How, how do you say it? Model? Modus op. Yeah, we we know his modus operandi. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and I'm just trying to kind of figure out what his motivations were based on his his mo. It's it's probably some combination of uh, motivations because we can see that in on that footage with, that we saw, for example, from the documentary. Uh-huh. So just just to clarify for our listeners, we we watched uh, the People People Magazine investigates the I seventy killer, which we highly highly recommend. Um, I did all the research for this episode before I watched it, and they did a pretty bang up job on on that one. So go watch that; highly recommend it. But wh- yeah, remember uh, after the I think the after the policeman saw that footage, he commented on his. On the way, he moved while shooting his gun. He, right. he kind of made some sort of uh, so, turret. I, right? I think I think you're getting a little bit of a, ahead of yourself here. So we we haven't established whether or not that guy is the I seventy killer. But are you are you saying that you believe that it is the same guy? Because the 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 first six string of mur- the first six murders mm-hmm. were confirmed because they they were all matched the same gun. The shell casings that were left behind mm-hmm. all matched the same weapon forensically. But then there were three attacks in Texas that were from a different gun mm-hmm. where Vicki Webb was the survivor that she talked about her experience getting shot in the back of the neck and getting paralyzed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the Billy Brosman murder happened nine years after that in 2001. So... We're we're not we're not sh- we're not sh- sure whether the Billy Brosman murder was the I seventy killer. We're not even sure if the Texas murders were the I seventy killer, but the MO matches. It's just that the firearm doesn't. So there, you can't be one hundred percent certain on it. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But what are what's your opinion? Do you think it was the same guy that did all of these? So I mean, if you if we assume, right? If it, if it was the same guy, well, all, all we can do is assume. Yeah, 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 yeah. If we assume that it was the same guy, we can see the um, that for him, then they d- talked about the way he moved, then he then he uh, shoot his gun. He kind of made this period, you, you know, like he was kind of like. Fencing. So, so they, as, as if he was fencing. Yeah. So the way that they didn't show the footage of, of Billy getting shot, but what they did was they described how the shooter shot Billy and what he did. It, it, he, they described it almost like a, like a dance move or he, like he lifted his left hand up above his head as he readied his gun with his right hand and then shot Billy that way. Just like a really pompous way of shooting somebody. Yeah, the, the first thing that came to my mind was like, as, as if he was like fencing, you know, like yeah, yeah. Olympic style. Thinking fencing, he's like know? Zorro or the Zorro of. Yeah, yeah, of yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that's why I wanted to bring up the point. It's like a free flow point, but it's free flow discussion. So, uh, about the gun. Uh huh. It's it, the, the first gun, like before he, he maybe allegedly the same guy. I don't know change the the gun for the other one it was really long right yeah it was like 11 so the barrel the barrel on it was almost a foot long which is about this this long yeah just only the barrel yeah the total the total length of it was 16 and a half inches it's really long really long gun yeah so if it was the same guy right just us Allegedly, or like we can assume, right? Well, it might have been. Well, dude, can you just say whether or not you believe? Do you, all right, fi- are you 50 50 that it's the same guy, or do you think that it's most likely the same guy? Or like, where are you on that? Do you think that it is the same guy? Well, let me more, let me, more than likely, let me bring the, the point first, and then we can okay, uh, fine, fine. Ma- maybe it will clarify something. I'm, I'm, okay. I don't know. So, basically, what I thought about him using that gun before. If it was him, uh, it was a long gun. So again, it made me think about like about the fang- about fencing or like some sort of using the sword kind of thing. You know, mm-hmm. it, it might have been his uh, signature. You know, right? Kind of his signature gun and the action. And then, if it was the same guy, he also did this kind of weird move as he was fencing while he was attacking that guy at at the store on the footage we saw right so first of all yeah it's it's it, it, it's a, it's a long stretch you know but but uh yeah that's what i've thought about it it makes him fall into hedonistic category i think yeah these sorts of move moves you know these are like these are not He's getting some sort of a sick pleasure out of doing this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's that, very clear that he's getting some sort of sick pleasure out of doing this. He's doing this this stupid fucking dance move as he's shooting this guy. It, it, you know, um, it's it's fucking sick. And um, I would agree with you. I do think that this guy falls under the the hedonistic uh, category. And uh, but he, he right, but what? Yeah, yeah, continue, continue, continue. Uh, I was just going to say, um, 
Yeah, I don't think that he's a visionary guy. I don't think that he's suffering from some sort of like a a mental disorder or like a like schizophrenia or something. I don't think it's that. Um, I don't think that he's he's on a mission either. So I I do want to bring up that, you know, before I really dug into this case, I thought that like when I just had a surface level amount of knowledge on this case, I thought that this guy was kind of like a like an incel or somebody that hates women and goes around on a mission to murder women, you know, because he hates women or something like hmm. that. I thought, I thought that he might be that kind of guy who just hates women so much. He's going to go in there and just, just like murder women working alone in stores because he hates women and they're easy targets. Well, but digging deeper into this case, I don't think that, I don't think that it was that. And, um, you know, people, they'll, they'll point to the murder of Michael McCown as like a case of mistaken identity. Like he wanted to kill a woman, but it, it turned out that maybe he couldn't see very clearly. And he thought that Michael was a woman because from behind he looked like one because of the ponytail. Mm-hmm. But I think that he probably went in there thinking that there would be a woman in there. Yeah. And then he saw a big burly man with a ponytail and he's like, oh, shit. And he's, he's not hiding his gun, so he has to think quick and, and kill the guy right there. Because I, I think this guy was a little guy, and I think Michael would have easily overpowered him if he wasn't careful. So I think that, I think that he chose women in particular because they were easy targets who would be less likely to fight back. Not necessarily because he hated women but just because he thought that they were the only types of targets that he could easily dominate. So I don't think that he was like a mission oriented killer who was after women in particular. I just think that he picked them out because they were easy targets. That's all. Yeah. I have on some sort of argument against that. A okay. little bit. It's, it's not super strong, but still bring the, it on. The, the argument is that I read from that book on the criminal behavior. They said that, Quite often, serial killers, they would choose easy targets, right? Uh-huh. But they would be easy also in some other way that no one would be looking for them. That would be another like reason for them to choose like uh, disadvantaged women, like maybe prostitutes, Sex workers, yeah. uh, the drug abusers, or whatever, the right. drifters, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah. But him. It was different. So I, I guess if he just wanted to kill someone and wanted to choose the easiest target. You know? Well, I, I, I think there's an argument to be made that these, these victims were quote unquote safe just because he would go in there, he would shoot them and then walk out, get into his car or whatever vehicle that he was on and get right back on the highway. And within an hour, he's 70 miles away down the highway before the police even get to the scene. So that's how he's been able to evade arrest. But then there are the other types of people who murder disadvantaged people who are not going to be missed. I mean, mm-hmm. it, in their mind. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then that's how they get away with their crimes. Yes. But this guy, he didn't really care. He just, he just, he was just in and out and then gone. And then that's, that's how he was able to get away with it. But I think it's all the same motivation. And I think that this guy, he did it for a thrill. I think this guy was a thrill killer. Uh, so you think he wasn't on the mission? I, I don't think so. I think, I, think he, I think he was doing this simply because he got a thrill from it. So, 
But what about like the the thing that he was choosing, like the same kind of type types of. Well, I, I mean, I just I just went over that. I, yeah, I think, I know, I think I that he ch he chose women working alone in shops because they were the most the most the least likely type of victim that would fight back against him. Mm -hmm. If he chose a man or multiple victims, that's more likely for them to overpower him, take his gun or whatever. He wouldn't get away with it as easily. So I think this guy was just looking to go in, murder somebody for fun. It's sick. But I think he did it for fun, and then he would get out, get away, and all those endorphins and adrenaline going through his veins was like an addiction for him. And I think that's, that's what it was. And while we're on this subject, I wanted to ask you, let's assume that the guy who killed Billy Brosman, the guy on the, on the video footage in the liquor store, mm -hmm. was the I-70 killer. I wanted to ask you, about you know there's like that's that how do i put this into words you know when when addicts they they see maybe they see some sort of familiar imagery and it causes them to get this compulsion to relapse into their addiction mm -hmm, mm -hmm. what's that called in, in what what is it like environmental trigger, trigger or something like that in, yeah, yeah. like an environmental trigger mm -hmm. what my what my my hypothesis is this guy, for whatever reason, on this night was in Terre Haute, Indiana. Maybe he was there on, on business. Maybe he was just passing through. But I think that he was, I think he was going down a trip. He was going on a trip down memory lane, so to speak. And he was just right down the street at Sylvia Ceramics, where Sylvia Ceramics was. And something inside of him got triggered. And he he decided to do this again on the spot. He couldn't control himself. Uh, he walked into that liquor store, didn't even know didn't even know that there were CCTV cameras. Didn't didn't care to disguise himself before going in. Just went in and and shot Billy uh, because he couldn't control himself. And then that's that's what I think happened. I think this guy was the I seventy killer. And I think that. Through some sort of environmental trigger, he was in Terre Haute that night. He went past his, his, the crime scene that he was at nine years earlier. It triggered him to relapse. And uh, he, went, he went and murdered Billy. You mean he remembered the thrill? Yeah. And that's, that's what I think. And I wanted to know what you, what you thought about that. I mean, yeah, if we, if we look at it from the perspective of addiction, you know. Like, like if it was his addiction yeah. to get this real, I mean, it sounds reasonable, I think. Might have happened. Yeah. Because that was the place where he got it in the first place, right? Yeah. Close. So yeah. He kind of... That, that would have been the, uh, the thir his third attack. So he, he, he kind of relapsed away. That's what I think. Because this store, this liquor store is super close to where Sylvia Ceramics is. It's right down the street. It's literally right down the street. But and the, I don't think that's coincidence. But the question would be like, the question would be like, what made him go back? So the question would be like, if it's yeah. relapsed or it happened even before, like maybe he had like... He, he might have just been like, well, I'm passing down here. Let's take a, a trip down memory lane real quick. Maybe it, one part of him is 
is fighting the urge to do it, but at the same time he wants to revisit his his past, you know. And then once he's there, that's when the the compulsion gets gets the better of him. And I think that's I don't know if it happened exactly like that, but I think that it happened somewhere along those lines where he was in the area and he just felt this compulsion to do it again. I mean, it's it's impossible to pre- predict what was like, you know, going on in his right. mind, but sounds like a good hypothesis. It might have yeah. happened. Might have okay, happened. so why the Irma Verka ET-22 of all choices? Do you have any thoughts about that? Oh, yeah. The, again, it's in the way, uh, uh, yeah, I think it was kind of ritualistic for him, you know, to use this sort of long gun because if it's the same guy, like we talked, uh-huh. the, the moves that he pulled, maybe he theatrical, he, maybe he he did the same thing, and that gun was a kind of a, like a sword of some sort, you know. You think he chose it because it was like it, he it was sort of like a theatrical piece to yeah, his yeah to his yeah yeah theater. it was like he was. The move in his uh, I, F symphony or something. I, I sort so. of agree too because this this gun is not practical to murder anybody with no. in any any way. I mean, for one, difficult to conceal. Two, it it jams really easily. So much so that that this guy took the time to polish his bullets with jeweler's rouge to keep them properly lubricated so that they would be less likely to jam. And even then, this gun. From what I understand, jams super easily. So, um, you know, he, he if he pulls it out and it just goes click, he's fucked. So there's yeah. no reason to do this. I mean, it's kind of like I said earlier, where if if I was this guy and I had this desire, I I don't. I really don't have a desire to kill anybody. Just as a disclaimer here, <laughs> if I have to give that disclaimer. But if I was, I would use a revolver because for one. It's never gonna misfire like like a um like a like a regular handgun like yeah. this w- with a magazine in it, and two, it's not gonna eject a shell casing that the police are gonna find later. And then three, if if you get a a short barreled revolver, you're not gonna, I mean, you're gonna be able to conceal it way easier than you would with this Irma Verka. So I have no fucking yeah, idea why he another, chose this. Another point to add to that. Remember that he he polished polished the bullets with with what the jeweler's red rouge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He polished the bullets. Probably, I guess it was like a part of his ritual. You know, I I don't think he polished it as a ritual. I I think he polished it as a as a practical precaution because the Irma Verka easily jammed, and if if you were to polish the bullets with the jeweler's red rouge, it would be less likely to jam on you when you try to fire it. I, I know, but I I'm know, just saying. There's like extra. There's like extra work that you need to go through. Yeah, but through. that extra work was might have been motivated by his hedonistic urge too. You know, like I mean, he was maybe, maybe in his head, maybe he was already like you know, he was already feeling that rush and control while he was like polishing the bullets. He already knew that, you know. Yeah, he's yeah. gonna get there, and uh, I think it was all part of his like. It could have been signature. both, I guess. 
It could have been both a ritual and something that was practical. It, it was definitely practical because, like you said, it was getting stuck. Yeah, yeah, it'd be less it, likely it, to it, jam. It, it, easy to jam. So, I guess definitely the freaking hedonistic motivation was big in him. You know? Yeah, I, I, I'm convinced that this guy was a thrill killer. I think he, he did that. He didn't give a shit about his victims. Definitely a, a true psychopath that uh, does not value human life. Uh, he got some sort of a thrill from it. I don't think that it was a mission-oriented spree of killings. Uh, I think that he just chose easy victims. And and part of the thrill for him was running away and being far down the highway before the police even got there. So that's just my opinion. Um, yeah, that, that actually might have gave him the... Feeling of control, you know. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. So I, I'm, I'm, I do. I do think that it, it, you could fit him a little bit into the power and control category as well. Yeah. But I think there's some overlap between the two categories. You know. Definitely. Definitely. But I, I think maybe between like all the categories, there is some overlap. Yeah. And. Uh, so do you do you think that that all all three strings of the murders were the I seventy killer, like the ones down in Texas and the Billy Brossman murder? Like, do you most likely? I'm just asking, most likely, not. I mean, of course, we can't know for certain, but you think it's more likely than not that all of these are the same guy? I mean, the same modus operandi. Same modus operandi. The Dude, everything is the same except for the but, uh, for the gun type. Uh, again, if we go back a little bit to the book I read, they said, it, it, I think they said like during seventies and eighties, they were uh thirty five or forty serial serial, serial killers mm -hmm. active in U.S. Yeah, it, like every year I think. This so, was the nineties. Yeah, but they said like it, it didn't. I don't remember what they said exactly, but it's like... It, but it, but it's, the point is, they're very, very rare. Yes, they are, but really hard to say. Really hard to say. It might have been someone imitating the guy, actually, too. Right? I think it could, be a, it could be a copycat, but man, me personally, I think they're all the same guy. I think they're all the same guy, and the reason I say that is that the overall physical description matches. There are a, a couple... A couple discrepancies, like for example, Vicky Webb describing um, the guy as looking kind of weather beaten, like working outside. Mm -hmm. And then when you look at the video of Billy Brossman nine years later, his, his killing or eight years—I can't remember how long it. Eight years, eight years later, he doesn't look very weather beaten, but and his hair is darker. But I keep thinking that in the eight years or so that have passed, he might have gotten a different job where he's not out in the sun constantly. His hair might have gotten darker because it's no longer getting sun bleached by the sun. And somebody who has medium brown hair, if they're in the sun a lot, it's going gonna, it's gonna to turn that strawberry blonde, reddish kind of dirty blonde tinge to it, you know, just from being photo bleached in the sun. So I think it's, it's quite possible that it is, it, it's all the same guy. Um, I mean, the guy could have could have even bleached his hair for all we know. Who knows? Um, and there is another another detail that that I I noticed was the guy on the Billy Brossman videotape walked bow legged, which is 
Vicky Webb described the guy who shot her as walking bow-legged. So I thought that was really interesting too. Short guy looked short to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it's I think it's the same guy, man. Personally, same mo. And it looked the guy in the tape looked like he had done this before. Just cool as a cucumber. Just no no facial expression change. Just mm-hmm. no remorse, right? No remorse. Just cold blooded, man. I think it's the same guy in all of these. What about you? Well, like I said, man, I'm I'm not sure, but what what which direction do you lean? All right, well, let let's move on to a to a new question. So, yeah. what do you make of the construction foreman stories? So, in that doc, that documentary that we watched where the guy pulls up to the construction site and almost gets shot and uh but that guy who almost shot him he had a companion right a female allegedly yes allegedly yeah 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 yeah, yeah. and uh, again from what i read from that book they said that they said that uh, among the female killers many kind of you know got there because of their partners uh-huh. Like sometimes their male partners are the killers or something, and then they yeah. kind of get lured into that. And, yeah, um, it's it makes the story more complicated. I think you know it does. And I I want to what I want to say about this is I'm kind of suspicious about this story because if I was sitting on this heap of inf- of important information that was regarding some psycho brandishing a gun and possibly somebody who had just murdered somebody and then tried to murder me. And I felt that my call to the police department had just slipped through the cracks because of how preoccupied they were. I would call them back. Like I wouldn't just let it go. So I find it kind of unbelievable that this man, if his story is true, would just sit on it and keep it to himself for 30 years so it, it makes me kind of suspicious that this guy might be just one of those crazy people who makes shit up in order to kind of insert themselves into an investigation. Mm-hmm. You know, people are fucking insane. So I think that it's quite possible that it's one of those cases because I also think it's unbelievable that the construction foreman would not have noticed a woman sitting in the passenger seat until he had just pulled up into the the trailer because he he noticed the guy tailgating him, which means he would have been looking in his rear view mirror as he's driving. He should have seen a a woman sitting in the passenger seat. I don't know why it took him till they got to the trailer to see the woman unless she was ducking down or hiding or something. But, um, I think this guy he could have he could have read any any description of the I seventy killer online and been able to come up with a consistent description of the guy. Like, I mean, I, I guess it's possible that the documentary just didn't explain the situation well enough, but it sounded like the guy called back in thirty years later with all of these details rather than providing it all back in nineteen ninety two. Like, it just it doesn't sound like anyone took down a report back then. So this is all stuff that he's providing only 30 years later. So I I don't trust this account, at least not until I get a good reason to. So you don't trust that guy? Oh, so, oh, 
No, I don't trust that. I, I don't trust that you can't. I'm not calling him a liar or mm-hmm. anything. I just, I'm just saying, like, I have to suspend my belief mm-hmm. because, like, this was 30 years later. He, he, like, if if some guy just tried to fucking murder me, and I thought that I just felt that the police department just missed my call. I'm not gonna let that go. There's some psycho out there trying to fucking murder people. I'm gonna like call them back the next day or whenever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Come on, dude. You're just going to let it go? No, I don't believe that. Um, there is one thing that I wanted to bring up was that uh, Vicky Webb described the guy as having kind of a low gravelly voice. And it kind of reminded me of this guy when I worked at Sears. He would come in specifically only to corner me and start talking to me. But it was this psycho guy who would come in and he would... Every time he would walk in through the front door, he would he would duck his head down so that the camera in, in the front of the store wouldn't see him. Mm-hmm. And then he would just like walk up, try to look for me so that he could talk to me about like how the government is like trying to spy on everybody and shit. And what he would do is he would he would try he would talk to me and disguise his voice by talk. He sounded like Batman when Batman talks, you know, you talk like this, you know, uh-huh, uh-huh. and uh yeah, he would, and he would just talk around in circles about the same stuff so that I, I he would just corner me and I, I couldn't leave. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, he just mm-hmm. talk about the same shit. You know, I don't have a computer because Obama can triangulate my position. You know, just crazy shit like that. So it made me think that the guy who was talking to Vicky might have done the same thing, disguised his voice by making it sound deeper, a deeper gravelly voice, you know? Um, she also described him as walking bow-legged. The guy who killed Billy Brossman, I would also describe as walking bow-legged. Mm-hmm. I think it's the same guy, man. I, I really do. I think it's all the same guy. So just to sum up, I think it's a, all the same guy. He did it for a thrill. A complete psychopath. Val- doesn't value human life, obviously. Chose his victims because they were easy. Not particularly because he wanted to kill or hurt women, necessarily. I, th- I don't think it mattered to him. I think he just chose the easiest targets, which most of the time were women. And he's a little guy described as short. So, of course, he would be more likely to pick women because, you know, they wouldn't be able to overpower him. But the average man would. He's a little man. Any final thoughts before we go, man? So, yeah, man, I was really shocked by the story we covered today and uh yeah also that then we watched the documentary and uh, how the lives of the relatives have been affected by these tra- tragedies you know it was yeah when you when you hear when you see and you hear the the way that this has impacted their families it's it really puts things into perspective like they're not just names on a sheet of paper anymore. They're now, you know, like a real person. Yeah. They, they they were a real person, and people cared about them. Still do. Um, and that's why I hope that this chicken shit motherfucker gets gets captured eventually. Hopefully sooner than later. All right, man. Do you have any apologies, shoutouts, or clarifications you'd like to make before we go? Not this time, man. 
All right. Well, I've got an apology to make. Davis, our producer, told me that I'm not supposed to body shame anyone on this podcast. So I'd like to just apologize to all of our micro penis listeners out there. I only meant it as a slam to the I-70 killer. Um, I'm actually rooting for you guys. I, I really am. And hopefully we find a cure for it in our lifetime. All right, man, I think it's time to get out of here. Like sands through the hourglass, so too are the minutes of our podcast. But don't fret, dear listener. We'll be back again to breathe new life into an old mystery next time. Помните, ребята, истина прячется в тени. Вместе мы найдем ее. This is Super Mystery Bros. Mm-hmm.